we don't spend that much time in nature. We are sort of epically disconnected from it. And because of that, we don't know how it makes us feel. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Florence Williams, a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, and numerous other publications. Florence is also the writer and host of the Audible original series, Breasts Abound. She's a fellow at the Center for Humans and Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University. Her work focuses on the environment, health, and science. Florence's first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology. Her latest book is called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. If you're getting value out of this show, please go to oneyoufeed.net slash support and make a donation. This will ensure that all 185 episodes that are in the archive will remain free and that the show is here for other people who need it. Some other ways that you can support us is if you're interested in the book that we're discussing on today's episode, go to oneyoufeed.net and find the episode that we're talking about. There will be links to all of the author's books, and if you buy them through there, it's the same price to you, but we get a small amount. Also, you can go to oneyoufeed.net slash book, and I have a reading list there, oneyoufeed.net slash shop, and you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and other things. And finally, oneyoufeed.net slash Facebook, which is where our Facebook group is, and you can interact with other listeners of the show and get support in feeding your good wolf.
Thanks again for listening. And here's the interview with Florence Williams. Hi, Florence. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Your book is called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, which is something that I'm very excited talking about because I think I've learned that over the last number of years about myself, and it's not something I would have thought was true. But we'll get into all the science of that in a minute. But let's start like we always do with the parable. Okay. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. I think my reaction to that parable is... Uh, a little bit contrarian, <laughs> I guess I would say. It, it seems just too simple to dismiss one wolf as the bad wolf and one wolf as the good wolf. And I guess maybe because I'm a writer and I like to sort of plumb the complexities and depths of people's psyches, you know, I kind of like knowing that both of those wolves can offer us something, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's sort of too simple, I think, to identify one as, as being one we should starve and one that we should feed. I guess I feel like sometimes being friends, you know, with the dark wolf, you know, and sometimes you can learn something from that darker place. So I guess that's just something I've been thinking about lately. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. So let's talk a little bit about the book. The title is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. So let's just start with happier. In what ways does nature make us happier? There have been a lot of studies, actually, over the last, I would say, 10, 20 years showing that when we spend time in pleasant natural environments, and even sometimes unpleasant natural environments, it can really boost our mood. Uh, and, and this is something environmental psychologists, you know, noticed, I would say, in the 70s, especially with people who were depressed, you know, after they spent, you know, a certain amount of time outside or in a garden or in a forest, uh, they just reported feeling happier, feeling less frustration, less anger, less aggression. And I would say in more recent years, that psychology has been really confirmed with neuroscience, with biomarkers. So, for example, there has been research coming out of Japan that shows that cortisol levels or stress hormones decrease even after just 15 minutes of being in a sort of peaceful forest environment. And then your blood pressure drops and your heart rate variability shifts in ways that are sort of um, more resilient to stress. And I think some of us would think, well, that's kind of obvious. You know, we know we feel good after a walk in the park. But I think what was less expected was sort of the level to which our, our nervous system and our physiology really reflects that. Yeah, the happier goes hand in hand with healthier. And in the book, you, you cite studies that talk about blood pressure and cortisol levels. And you even cite something called NK cells, natural killer cells. What are those? Yeah, natural killer cells are part of our immune system. Uh, And they are, um, for example, uh, natural killer T cells, which can fight cancer and other diseases. And uh, again, this research out of Japan, seems sort of controversial, um, is showing that our natural killer cells seem to increase after 
you know, just these short walks uh, in in natural areas, and then and then also even um, these natural killer cells. If you put them in a petri dish, they seem to increase uh, and count and cell count um, after exposure to certain aerosols from cypress trees, <laughs> which is kind of fascinating. And, and in a way, if you think about it, I mean, these these aerosols from from trees are designed to protect the tree. Um, so, you know, trees will emit these in order to sort of ward off pesticides, for example. You know, it could be that there's really something about our human immune system that can converse with these aerosols as well. It's really fascinating. Yeah. You talk about aromatherapy in the book a little bit, and you talk about the smells. And what I thought was interesting, and it's sort of a theme that runs through the book, is that you're on one hand, you're deconstructing why being in nature makes us feel better. And there's lots of different theories, whether it's smell or sight or hearing. And so you go through the science of each of those and that you're also referencing a lot of classical figures, a lot of poets, different people who are sort of not deconstructing it and saying, take it sort of as a whole thing. And I just thought that was interesting the way you kind of bounced back and forth between that and the book. Yeah. I mean, I think the science writer in me was really drawn, you know, to the research, to the sort of latest evidence. And of course we live in an evidence-based society. And so I wanted to make the case kind of based on what they were telling us, uh, you know, and each scientist kind of lives in a silo, right? So, so the physicist was convinced that the reason we feel good in nature is because of the fractal patterns, you know, that somehow, um, you know, converse with the perceptual systems in our brain, you know, and the, and the psychologists were convinced, you know, that it had to do with our stress reduction levels. There were other people who had, you know, felt like it, oh, it has to do with the color green or the color blue or the smell. And yet, I am a humanist also, and I think part of me was resistant to the idea of, you know, so compartmentalizing this really kind of magical, spiritual relationship that we have with the natural world. And maybe it's not just because of, you know, one particular kind of sensory system. And I think, the, you know, it's the poets really and the philosophers who kind of take us back to this more kind of full immersory, full sensory kind of engagement uh, with nature that also appealed to me. There's lots of great quotes in the book from various writers, but one that I loved was Walt Whitman's when he warned of the city's pestiferous little gratifications. And I <laughs> thought that was such a great description for how sometimes I feel when I'm just in the city or just sort of doing city-like things over a while. It just starts to feel like whatever the gratifications are, they just become, I would never use a word like pestiferous, but I probably should. I love the word pestiferous. <laughs> and I think it is so appropriate, you know, and especially now when we do have these little gratifications that are so tied to our technology, you know, which of course really didn't exist in Walt Whitman's time. But but isn't that just a perfect description for, you know, what we feel when we get, uh, you know, a text message coming in or, um, you know, when someone responds to or likes a Twitter post? I mean, it's it's this little gratification that that also just like gnaws at our soul. <laughs> and on some level, we know it's really bad for us, even though it kind of tickles our dopamine system. Yep. The idea of seeing this as a holistic thing versus the reductionist science piece reminds me of when I started getting into 
eating whole foods because there was this idea that when you deconstruct each of these, like an apple, well, here's the nutrient that's got this nutrient and that nutrient, but there's really an idea that there's something else that the, the interplay of all those different things makes an apple greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that's very similar to what you're saying here with nature. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I felt like I had to sort of draw apart the evidence and explain it, you know, but ultimately, you know, whether we believe it or not comes down to how we feel when we're outside. And that depends on paying attention to how we feel when we're outside. And I think, you know, you said it so well at the beginning of the show when you said, you know, I didn't really realize how happy I was going out into nature. I think that's kind of where a lot of us find ourselves, that we don't really pay attention. We're on our phones. Maybe when we're walking outside, we have our earbuds in. We're mulling over, you know, our to-do list. (laughs) You know how it is. I mean, we're all multitasking so much and we're not really tuning in to how we feel. And I think, you know, if there's one kind of lesson I would love people to take away from this book, it's just to, you know, go outside and also just pay attention to what makes you feel good. Yeah, you say in the book that some of us don't even realize how nature can make us feel better. We're so distanced from it as a culture at this point. And I myself, I don't think, had any sense of that. It was really when I met a gentleman named Lou DeWine, who I love to bring up. He's uh, now passed away, but he ran a little retreat center in Ohio called Niches. And he was the first person I really got that idea of nature deficit disorder from, that there's something in us that is really lacking if we don't have some degree of exposure to nature. Yeah, that's right. I think it's kind of a vicious cycle. As you mentioned, you know, we we don't spend that much time in nature. We are sort of epically disconnected from it. And because of that, you know, we don't we don't know how it makes us feel. And so we undervalue it. You know, we tend to think other things will make us feel good, like shopping or, you know, binging on Netflix or ice cream. And those things do make us feel good, but we don't really give nature sort of a fair shot, you know, in that competition. And of course, when we when we go outside in nature, really the side effects are mostly positive. I mean, we also get exercise. We also sort of clear our heads and, you know, our, our cognition can improve. Um, you know, we may sleep better because we're, you know, kind of sinking our cycles to the sun. You know, the benefits are just sort of on and on. And yet, you know, we'd rather just take a pill or eat some ice cream. Yeah. You mentioned in the book how a lot of the science about being in nature is coming out of Japan and uh, South Korea. And you were talking about how they sort of look at this a little bit differently than Americans do. Yeah. What made me think of that was when you said, you know, take a pill and you, you sort of made a joke like, well, if Americans, if we could get the benefit of nature in a pill, that's how we do it. Yeah. I mean, we definitely want the quick fix. I think there's no question that, you know, Eastern and Western philosophies about nature are are really divergent. I mean, here we consider ourselves really apart from nature. We're separate from it. We think of it as something other. And I think, you know, in a lot of Eastern spiritual traditions and just in daily life, even today, nature is just more integrated into daily life. It's not necessarily pristine nature or wilderness, um, but, you know, the emphasis on blossoms and on, you know, flower arrangements on, you know, Zen gardens. There's just this notion that that we can integrate nature into our daily lives. And I just don't think we do that as much here. And then I also think the questions that the two cultures are pursuing are really different and sort of fascinating. I felt like um, in, in many parts of, of um, Japan and South Korea, and even in Europe too, I think more of the research is focused on uh, sort of emotional states like psychology, 
how do we feel better? How do we help prevent depression? You know, maybe part of that is because those cultures really care about prevention and preventative health. They're state-funded, you know, healthcare, for example. The research in this country is sometimes more focused on how can time in nature actually make us work harder? (laughs) How can we be more productive? How can we drain more blood, you know, from office workers (laughs) by maybe providing a break in nature or a roof garden, you know, like the one found on Facebook. The Facebook campus has this beautiful roof garden, but, you know, let's not kid ourselves. It's really still designed toward productive workforce. Right. That leads me to another topic I wanted to mention, which was meditation. And meditation has gone through a very similar thing, right? There's meditation for the spiritual benefits and there's meditation for, you know, being happier or healthier, but then there's also meditation for being more productive. You know, you've got the army doing a lot in meditation. And I thought that was an interesting parallel to nature, but also to tie it back in, you talked about how one of the scientists was saying that nature might be a better option for a lot of us than meditation because meditation, so many of us give up on. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. This was from a psychologist at uh, Pennsylvania State. And he said, we can get a lot of great benefits from meditation. I mean, this has been well proven. I mean, you know, there's a ton of neuroscience on this. Um, the problem is really the, the stick-to-itiveness, <laughs> um, the adherence. And, and, and meditation is also something you have to learn. And not everyone gets there. You know, I, I find meditation to be challenging. I feel like my, you know, my brain is always churning a million miles a minute. And yet, when I just go for a walk... You know, eventually, maybe maybe not right away, but after twenty or thirty minutes, seven or eight days straight, your mind <laughs> yeah, starts to quiet seven down. Or eight days. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's that's I my mind, that. I guess. But <laughs> but I also I've discovered that there are shortcuts. So of course, I like that too. I like the shortcuts. Um, there are ways that we can engage our our minds. You know, when we're walking outside, um, that can, can that can sort of help us get into that zone. You know, a little more quickly. And because now I live in a big city, I live in Washington D.C. Um, I feel like I I have to sort of maximize, <laughs> you know, my strategies for getting the most out of the nature that I can find here. So, what are some of those strategies? Some of those strategies involve, for example, trying to pay attention to my surroundings. I mean, that's kind of the overarching theme. So yeah, so I really do take my earbuds out. Like I don't, I'm not one of these people who will listen to a podcast, you know, while I'm on a hike. Um, Don't listen to her people. Keep listening (laughs) to this show. (laughs) (laughs) Just ignore that last piece. (laughs) If you're on a hike right now, put the show on pause. (laughs) And come back to it later. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's too bad. I mean, I would love to be able to multitask as much as I can. You know, I'm a working mom. I've got two kids. I have a long to-do list. It would be great. But, but I also know that I will get the most benefit from actually trying to hear the birds, trying to, you know, pay attention to which birds are nesting right now. I've kind of made friends with this nesting pair of hawks, you know, that hang out along um, the river where I walk most days. I will, you know, try to um, look at the fish that are jumping, you know, in the canal or in the river. I will look at the sky and notice what the clouds are doing. Um, I often walk in the evening because I have a dog and she's got to go out before bed. And, um, you know, I'll sort of check in with what the moon is doing. Like there are just little little elements of nature that I can kind of cue into mm-hmm. that, that I find just kind of put me in this more relaxed, restorative state, you know, pretty quickly.
The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. You talk about birdsong and how effective that is or how useful that is for a lot of people. And there are studies showing that it's one of the best sounds we can listen to. It's true. Although what I also learned was it depends on the bird. <laughs> yes. So it's more melodic, you know, and sort of chirpy and happy the bird, um, the more relaxed and alert we will feel. But there are some birds that are really grating, you know, the jay kind of call or the magpie. Um, and that turns out does not have quite the same uh, restorative effect. Yeah. And ever since I learned how smart crows are and that they can remember faces and keep grudges, their sounds have been a little bit more. Uh, are they kind of evil? Chris is saying they're evil. I don't know if they're evil. What they are is wicked smart. So now I hear their cause a little differently. And they are. It reminds me of that old joke. What does the crow say when he sees a friend crossing the road? Ka, ka. <laughs> Terrible. I'll leave it to Chris whether he wants to edit that out. So, yeah, I thought the studies on birdsong were very interesting. You know, businesses and institutions are starting to use this research in some interesting ways. So, for example, British petroleum um, petrol stations in in the UK are now piping birdsong, apparently, into the restrooms, you know, of these gas stations. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they think that it will it will leave people with an impression of cleanliness and freshness, and then they'll go spend <laughs> more money in the mini mart. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I, I wish they would. I wish the places who were doing it would 
pump bird song into where you're getting your gas instead of a TV show or a news or all the other racket that comes out a lot of those gas pumps these days. My gas station plays classical music, and it's actually quite oh, wonderful. <laughs> that is nice. Most of my gas stations don't play anything, but there's a couple where it's like a you know the news playing or a special show trying to get you to go in and buy different things inside. Yeah, that's definitely not relaxing. No. One of the interesting things you mentioned was that walking in nature versus walking in the city, you're likely to have less negative thoughts when you're walking in nature. There was a really interesting study that came out of Stanford um, a couple of years ago, and um, the psychologist there actually imaged people's brains. So he scanned people's brains to find out you know, which parts of their brains were lighting up in different environments. And so he sent a group of, of uh, volunteers to walk along um, a city street, like a pretty busy city street for 90 minutes, um, and then another group to walk um, in a city park, but, but by no means a wilderness area, you know, just like a, a nice city park. It's the Stanford dish, you know, outside of Palo Alto. And what he found was that in the nature walkers, but not in the city walkers, a part of the brain, the activation became reduced. There was less activation in this part of the prefrontal cortex called the subgenual prefrontal cortex. And it's actually a part of the brain that is associated with um, ruminative thought or negative thinking. And then we know that that part of the brain is kind of um, the worry box. It's the part of the brain associated with depression, actually. And so I thought it was so interesting that it was after walking in nature that that part of the brain really calmed down. But of course, I think the fascinating question, and we don't really know the answer to this yet, is, well, if there's less activation in that part of the brain, where is that activation going instead? And the theories to that are, well, maybe it's going to parts of the brain um, that are more associated with things like um, long-term thinking, um, empathy, compassion, um, you know, self-concept, the things that we kind of, when we really can space out for long periods of time away from technology, you know, we start thinking about our, our goals and our dreams and who we are. You know, those are the kinds of big questions that I think so few of us really have the time to kind of tackle anymore. Yeah, it was interesting. Some of the studies in the book talk about, you know, the benefits of walking with others. And then there's lots of quotes in the book, you're again referencing lots of great thinkers, Plato and Nietzsche and lots of other people about how walking alone is where they get so many of their ideas. And so you kind of talk about the benefits of doing each of those things. Yes, exactly. I mean, we know that when we're outdoors with other people, we can really um, strengthen those bonds, the social bonds, the bonds of friendship. I know, you know, when my family is outside, my kids get along with each other better. I think, you know, we all have this shared experience. Um, you know, it can be a really beautiful thing to actually be outside with friends or family. But at the same time, I know for myself, there are times when I really just crave the solitude and I really need it because I'm working out, you know, issues with my work or issues with my personal life. Um, I need the time to kind of zone out and not have an agenda. Uh, and, I, and I think some really, really powerful things can happen when we allow ourselves to have that time. And in fact, in part of the book, I talk about wilderness, um, you know, and, and time in wilderness. And of course, there's a long tradition, right, of rites of passage, um, people having vision quests, solo fasting. I mean, there's a long, long spiritual tradition of this. And I think we'd be smart to kind of reconsider that, you know, in this kind of frenetic, crazy life that, that we all live now. Yeah, my son recently went on a couple-week outdoor trip, and part of it was a solo thing. So I think it was 
definitely very interesting and useful for him. What did he get out of it? That's a great question. Maybe we should call him and ask him because I can't remember. <laughs> but it made an impression on him. It made an impression. I think what he was struck by was how much harder it was than he thought it was going to be. Not necessarily the being alone. It was. I think it was being in the woods for that long. They got rained on an awful lot. And so I think that was a a somewhat sobering experience. No, I thought he really liked it. He loves to be outdoors. So, and I, you know, I think we just don't turn off our phones anymore and, and there are tremendous benefits from that. So I think, you know, one of the questions, when we look at the benefits of nature, how much of it is, is really attributed to nature itself and how much of it is attributed to sort of being away, you know, from the things that kind of stress us out. And, And I'm not sure the answer to that is, is necessarily important. Um, but, but I do think it's an interesting question. Yeah, it's probably some of both. I think people way before we had cell phones and all that have been talking about the beneficial effects of nature. You know, a lot of the people you're quoting in the book were, you know, writing hundreds of years ago in some cases and and we're, we're getting the benefits of nature. So it's probably some of both. Yeah, I think that's right. There were a couple different theories that you mentioned about how nature might help us. But one of them that I was really intrigued by was attention restoration theory. The general idea there, you can correct me if I'm wrong and then add on to it, was that a lot of our sense of mental unease comes from the fact that we've kind of worn out our frontal cortex or our our executive thinking. And that's what makes us feel bad. And that by going into nature, it gives that part of the brain a rest. And that's one of the reasons why it feels so good to us. Yeah, I think that that theory really has a lot of traction, and it was developed by uh, a couple, Rachel and Stephen Kaplan, at the University of Michigan in the 1970s. So again, long before there were cell phones, long before there was an internet, uh, you know, there was still a sense that our daily modern lives are fast-paced and frenetic, and um, you know, our to-do lists are very long. We're constantly working on tasks. We're constantly responding, you know, to external stimuli. We have a lot of information coming at us, and when we do that, it 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 makes us tired. It fatigues our frontal cortex, and we get a little bit grumpy, even if we don't realize it. We're just on some level kind of overtaxed, and when we go outside, the theory is that. Um, our attention is drawn kind of involuntarily just toward things that are beautiful. Um, we may notice a butterfly or we may notice a sunset. Um, so, so our attention is gathered away, but, but, it, but it's not a demanding kind of attention. It's just this kind of slower paced um, fascination. We have this sort of fascination. And when that happens, our frontal cortex actually relaxes. It sort of, um, it deactivates. And this has been shown in some of these brain scans as well. Our frontal cortex deactivates. And so when we go back to the office or when we go back to work, um, we actually feel refreshed. It's kind of this reset button. Yeah, that theory makes a lot of sense to me, too, because as we were talking about, you know, I talk all the time about like when I check my phone a lot every day, I can't really explain what it is, but I feel like it has some negative effect on me that I can't quite put my finger on exactly what it is. But it, I think fatigue is a good word for it. Mental fatigue kind of feels like what that is. Yeah, I think there's just this certain amount of, um, you know, just kind of strain, <laughs> you know, that, oh, God, here we go again. Somebody wants something from me or I have to respond to something that your time isn't totally your own and your mind isn't allowed to kind of wander on its natural path. I know, I mean, my kids go off to summer camp and they're teenagers, so they leave their phones behind and 
this really causes a lot of anxiety at first, you know, <laughs> to like not have their phones. But I asked them how they felt about it when they got back and you know, they were gone for weeks. And, um, you know, especially my son said, oh my God, it was so great not to have my phone. Like I just didn't feel like I had to be beholden to it, you know, in a way that, that we all are just 24 seven. Yeah. Yep, I definitely agree. I, I'm going on a silent retreat here in the not-too-distant future, and I'm looking greatly forward to not having the phone or, frankly, any kind of stimulation. Although, about halfway through, I'm sure I will be singing a different tune. I'll be like, give me anything, a fortune cookie to read. I'll take a fortune cookie. Right, the graffiti on the wall, something. Truly, I mean, I remember when I did one of these before, I'd stand there by the message board. <laughs> reading the med- you're just so used to having something that we put yeah. in our brain and when you take yeah. everything away boy it's it's uh it's an interesting experience it's true we're, we're just not used to that level of kind of um low stimulation yep. i think it makes it yep. a little crazy yeah <laughs> but when you're in nature see that's not what happens when you're that's in nature right. there actually is a lot of stimulation there's a lot to draw our interest like it's coming at us at a sort of more human pace, right? It's the it's the pace of walking or it's the pace of, you know, lying in the grass and looking up at, up at the sky. It's, it's really the pace that our brains evolve to travel in. So there are some recommendations that come out from this about the amount of time we should spend in nature. Obviously, more is better. But what did you learn about how often we should aim for? Yeah, I'm so fascinated by that dose question. <laughs> and I think a lot of people have it, especially in the Western world. It's like, OK, so so what's my prescription? You know, how much time do I need to spend? Right. Um, and, and there have been some really interesting um, studies in that area. And it looks like there is kind of a dose curve. So there are effects, actually, positive benefits from just looking out your window for 10 seconds or two seconds at a, at a green patch of, you know, grass or a tree. Um, if we take a micro break um, by looking at greenery, we can actually have a slightly better working memory, slightly better attentional focus when we go back to what we're doing. But, um, of course, the greater emotional benefits and psychological benefits really come from, from a deeper immersion and I, I was so interested to talk to researchers in Finland because in Finland, suicide rates are up, depression is up, alcoholism is up. And so they're very interested in trying to prevent some of those things. And, and they have come up with a very specific recommendation, which is that to prevent depression, people need a minimum of five hours a month in the woods. And of course, they, that's what they have. They have woods all over Finland. It's not necessarily a place where you'd learn a lot about canyons or deserts. That ends up being about 30 or 40 minutes twice a week. And they say, you know, if you can do 10 hours a month, it's better. But if you can do five hours a month or those 30 to 40 minutes twice a week, you'll actually go a long way towards preventing depression. So that was so specific. I thought that was kind of interesting.
I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge, and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified. They're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. I work by a place that has like a pond, um, one of those almost corporate ponds, right? But it's got beautiful trees and it's a nice pond and there's birds. I'm like, does this count? You know, there's a road next to it. But I know that it, it you know, for me, it does count because I definitely can tell the benefit of you know, making myself go out there for 15 or 20 minutes. It's way better than nothing, which is kind of what we always talk about on this show, that a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing. So if you're not going to do five hours, do five minutes, but anything helps. Well, it's true. And from the Japan studies, we know that even 15 minutes, you know, will reduce your blood pressure and improve your mood. So, you know, that's huge. 15 minutes actually can can kind of reset your, your mood for the whole day. But I think, you know, when you say for you, you know, it makes you feel good. I think that that's a key to sort of acknowledge that there's going to be a lot of individual variation. And I think that there are times in our lives or times in our week when we're more stressed out and we need a bigger dose of it. So, so again, I think it just comes back to sort of paying attention to your own kind of mental state and your emotional state and how you feel. You know, you may know that, oh, man, you really need to go look at the ocean. You know, that's what's going to make you feel good. Whereas for someone else, you know, the ocean might kind of make them feel anxious. You know, they don't, they don't like all that open space. So know what you like. Know where your emotional state is. And then, you know, try to make it happen because the rewards will be worth it. Yep. As Chris sits here and pets his dog while we talk, it makes me wonder <laughs> how animals fit into the nature piece. I mean, we know they make us feel better, but I just, it was kind of struck me. We were talking about the natural world and... Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with them on that. You know, Ed, Ed Wilson, the Harvard biologist or entomologist, talks a lot about biophilia. And, and I talk about that quite a bit in my book, that you know, our brains evolved in nature, that we have this innate affiliation with other living creatures, other living plants, for example. And, and wildlife, certainly, we do have this kind of compulsion, I think, to have a connection to other living creatures. And a dog certainly can release oxytocin in us when we make eye contact with a dog. We know that petting a dog releases happy hormones, can also lower our blood pressure. So so absolutely, my dog's absolutely a therapy dog. And I, I'm so fortunate and grateful I have her. I cannot imagine what a basket case Chris would be without these dogs. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too, actually. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I like you, I loved being able to put some of the science to things I already know. I love when science, what we're learning now, matches kind of what we either intuitively know or what we've learned from poets or spiritual teachers. When all that comes together, I always, it makes me feel 
doubly sure about the value. Mm, I agree. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support.